Um, it is a, a common misconception in Western meditation. But in fact, let us expand that. It's a common misconception in Western Buddhism. And I define Western Buddhism as um, all of the Buddhism that has been accumulated and learned by Western people that did not come from uh, reliable sources. In other words, Western Buddhism is basically the, the blind leading the blind. <laughs> and that uh, there have been occasions when some sighted people led some blind people around for a short period of time, but that doesn't mean then that those new, uh, those blind people who were led around a bit are now ready to lead other blind people. So from that perspective, let's talk about um, the actual teachings and the practices of the Buddha and how they have gotten confused. And that the actual teachings of the Buddha have to do with uh, freeing the mind, going off in getting into seclusion, getting comfortable, and start observing the mind and making some changes. This is the Four Noble Truths, this is the Eightfold Noble Path, and this is the practice of Anapanasati. Now, um, let's fast forward into the 1950s, when um, basically you could even go so far as to start in um, the time of Alexander the Great, who brought um, uh, form artistry, form sculptures, and artistry like that into, into the Asian world, into India. And before the time of uh, that invasion, the time of the soap, we're talking about 300 BC now, and 250 BC time period which would be 100 to 150 years after the time of the Buddha. In the time of the Buddha, there were three symbols. There was the Bodhi leaf. There was the Dhamma Chakra or the, the wheel that has eight spokes when it's the Eightfold Noble Path and has 12 spokes when it's dependent origination. And the third was of the image of a tree with a seat under it just, a, you know, like a worn down place where people were sitting under the tree. It wasn't until then after Ashok's time that the idea of a sitting Buddha in a sitting Buddha image ever came up. And that that seems to be those images of a sitting Buddha has greatly influenced Western people. The next thing that happened was in the 1950s when uh, the Burmese government allowed one of their high officials, Dubai Ken, to take his accountants. This was, by the way, the Burmese government's version of the Treasury Department, to allow those accountants some time for practice. And then Bawanka got with Dubai Ken and things went in that direction. So now, from those days of 70 years ago, Western Buddhism 
has come to understand that West, that Buddhism is sitting in a particular posture in a particular place for a particular period of time called a retreat or whatever like that. And that things have gone very far off with that. That in fact, uh, the actual practice of Anapanasati has words built into it that indicate bodily comfort. Having the body sitting at ease, at rest. And yet Western Buddhism has this idea of sitting for a long period of time doing some sort of struggle, some sort of strong determination system, sitting some sort of uh, endurance and, and uh, thinking that there's going to be some value in that. And so Westerners then approach meditation the same way that they approach every other job, like joining the army and doing boot camp. That in fact, some meditation retreats feel like a boot camp rather than a, a pleasure leisure resort, which is exactly what it's supposed to be. So in many cases, the idea that Westerners get about Buddhism is exactly opposite of what the actual teachings of the Buddha are. Now, when you begin to talk about pain, that indicates that um, the sitting postures have become important. That in fact, the only real posture that's important is, or the important parts of the posture is, is that it's stable, that you're not gonna fall over. Okay, especially uh, stable when uh, the body needs to be stable, like perhaps when it's falling asleep or jerking around or something like this. But any posture that's stable will do. Now, from India, there's a lot of different sitting postures that have become uh, synonymous with Buddhism, like the Burmese posture, the half Burmese posture, the lotus posture, the half lotus posture, the Zen postures, and other things like this. All of those postures were designed in a culture that was more or less tropical, except for the Zen. Everything else was tropical, utilizing the fact that people did sit on the ground, sit on the floor commonly. Where in Western culture, the child is picked up off the floor before he's two years old and put into a high chair. Then he sits at a desk when he's six years old in school, and he never gets around to sitting back down on the floor, which takes particular muscles in particular ways. And so um, the postures that we're in actually have very little or nothing to do with the practice of meditation other than, uh, let us say, ignorant associations. And Westerns would probably do better by sitting in a chair than sitting on the floor because now they're having to deal with something that they haven't dealt with before. Or another possibility is, is that when you begin to watch television or eat your food, sit on the floor. Spend a lot of time on the floor so that you can get your body back used to being on the floor and not call sitting on the floor anything to do with meditation. Sitting on the floor is just sitting on the floor.
right? And in that regard, the word meditation is actually a problematic word. The word meditation doesn't appear anywhere in any sutra. What did the Buddha practice then? What did he recommend? He recommended anapanasati. And that was the only practice that he recommended. When Bhikkhu Buddhadasa made that statement back in the 30s or 40s, um, he caught attention. And so there was some research done. Rather than just listening to the traditions that have been built up, mostly around later literature like the Vasudhimaga, Vemtidhimaga, uh, Abhidhamma, uh, commentaries, and all of that, which is where people go. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa went back to the sutras, which is the normal place for, for ones who were interested in the actual teachings of the Buddha to go rather than to the later commentary. And it's in the later commentary where you find the idea of there's 40 meditations, but the Buddha actually only taught one. And like I said, uh, that caused the literature search um, by all of the scholars of Buddhism in Thailand. And guess what? He was proven correctly that the Buddha only taught one meditation. That in fact, what is uh, listed in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, he stopped doing that, the, the eternal grounds. In that group of 40 different meditations, you also have metta practice and the jhana practice, and that the Buddha does not teach the jhana practice per se, he teaches anapanasati, and the results of anapanasati is getting the mind fit for work which means getting it into the jhana. So um, another one was the metta meditations. And yet we have sutras that show that the metta, karuna, mudita, upeka practice was practiced by others, including some of those other groups of people who then became students. So the Buddha continued to practice metta, karuna, mudita, upeka as an actual practice. And the Buddha then mentions that in the Anapanasati Sutta, those people who are doing this do the Anapanasati practice because it's the one who gives great fruit, great benefit. But the Anapanasati practice doesn't have anything to do with posture, a sitting posture. That in fact, Anapanasati can be practiced in, in all of the four normally known classes postures, walking, standing, sitting, and lying down. Now, the, uh, in, in the sitting and the lying down posture, there's actually a, quite a lot of postures in there. The reclining posture, for instance, somewhere between sitting and lying, like on a, uh, uh, a divan or a couch or something would be a kind of a half reclining posture. But the point that we're starting to make is, is that we need to get the body comfortable. We practice anapanasati for the body getting comfortable, not putting it in particular postures and then keeping those postures until uh, the blood circulation breaks down, until the nerves get pinched, until the knees start to hurt. That in fact, I know of 
quite a number of people who were really, really super dedicated to their practice enough to become monks, who then destroyed their ability to sit. The one, the first that I knew of was Conti Palo, who was an Australian monk. The next one that I know of is a German monk who stayed at uh, um, Wat Mahatat, but I've forgotten his name, unfortunately. Another one is a very famous monk, Vila Maramsi. He can't sit because it's, he's done too much damage to his knees by trying to sit on the floor, so he no longer can sit on the floor. And there's also a monk named Subato, who is now living in Australia, and that he does not want to stay at what, for instance, Watsuano, because he can't sit with the other monks, because he was working too hard at that sitting, and actually then damaged his legs. And so he carries around a doctor's certificate saying, don't make this monk sit on the floor. Right? So there's grave dangers. Your body is giving you a message. It's telling you, don't do that. Don't put your body in pain. And it's not the practice of the Buddha either, but it seems to be something that's gotten stuck into Western mentality that the, uh, everything to do with the teaching of the Buddha has to do with sitting in certain postures because look at all the statues that see all over but the statues didn't exist in the time of the Buddha that happened 150 to uh, 100 to 150 years after the time of the Buddha so this is my introduction now that what we need to do is find a comfortable posture that you can sit in for a little while so I just want to interject I um, you know, when I sit, because I'll, I'll generally sit on a um, Zafu Burmese style, and um, the pain primarily is in the muscles. It's not so much in the joints, or at least there's not really persistent pain there. And I've had sits where the pain has completely disappeared, you know, for, for okay. extended periods. So it's... Well Here's a question. When the pain does appear, what do you do? Uh, I try to, I mean, I try to just relax into it. So I try to just, you know, not tense up my muscles, not tense up other parts of my body. Usually, usually when there's pain, I don't change your posture. No, not typically. I mean, I would highly recommend that you listen to your legs and and change your posture. Stand up, in fact. Mm. Walk around a bit, or at least stretch your legs to the side or whatever like that. I know that there's a lot of, um, let us say, um, Asian customs mm-hmm. about pointing your feet at the, to the front, but there's no reason when you're sitting at home uh, to, to have any such rules as that. And also, um, even if you stretch out your legs in a meditation hall around other people, you can stretch them out to the side. But a better thing to do would be to stand up. Maybe even walk around a little bit. 
this would be what's recommended. Also, you can uh, practice not sitting in a particular posture. Find other postures. I've I've tried a bunch of different postures and I've had different, you know, I, I meditated in a chair for a while and that's what I, um, my, my problem with the chair, well, I eventually found a posture with the chair with enough supports where it felt there wasn't pain, but it wasn't very stable. So I think stability is sort of the issue. And, um, and besides that, getting kind of neck and shoulder pain if I'm slouching forward. So trying to trying to find a posture that's sustainable in a chair has also been. So I'm wondering what your recommendations are for something like that. Um, well, one of the things that the Buddha does recommend is to sit upright. And mm -hmm. there's good physics reasons for that. And that's gravity. Okay that if you are sitting and bent over, then the gravity is going to be pulling you down this way. If you're sitting up straight, then the gravity is pulling you straight down. Right. Okay. It's very, very much like a tall building that if the, um, uh, the foundation, like the Leaning Tower of Pizza, you don't know how much money, they've spent more money in the past hundred years trying to keep the Tower of Pizza uh, continuing to lean than the thing cost in the first place. And so now that it's leaning, they have to keep shoring it up and shoring it up and shoring it up, but they're afraid to put it upright like it ought to be because then they would lose the tourist attraction. <laughs> right. Okay. But with us, we can, in fact, do that. There are um, little techniques that we can use. One is imagine that there is a cord or a rope or something that's pulling you straight up. And so you sit up just a little bit and then imagine that cord is cut and then you can relax just a little and come back down to where you're sitting up straight. Mm -hmm. That's the way to practice is to get the body erect in your, in your sitting posture and whether or not you're leaning against the wall to get that erectness. In fact, sitting against the wall and leaning against the wall will help you understand what sitting straight is. And yet many, many people say, oh, no, 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 no. You're not supposed to sit up against the wall. You're supposed to go sit out there like every all the other stone statues that are in such misery. And you be in misery, too, just like everybody else. That's our practice here. Okay. But that's not the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha's teachings is to have, uh, in fact, the four first steps of Anapanasati is, is to uh, cultivate sati, to remember each breath is a long in-breath, and to remember that each breath is a long out-breath, not an ordinary breath, not a shallow breath, but we continue to take long, deep breaths. But in fact, one of the things that you can do as you're breathing in long is you can stretch up and make sure that you're sitting correctly. And as you breathe out, you relax and you let it sit down just a little bit. So you can see maybe that the head is going up a half an inch on the in-breath and going back down that half an inch on the out-breath. All right. Now, the next step of Anapanasati, step three, is the knowledge of the body, to understand the body. 
we get to that understanding through the breathing. And so we notice the touch of the cloth, we notice the winds, we notice all kinds of touching sensations that are experienced. You can feel them in the hands, you can feel them in the legs, and we get really in touch with the body. This third step, if it's done in an overly stylized way, in an overly organized way, would be the way Goenka uh, teaches of the um, uh, scanning. But we don't have to do the scanning. That's just an, an organized way of doing it. The more natural way to do it is one by one as they occur. Whatever sensations present themselves to you from the body, pay attention to that. But pay attention to it with the understanding of relaxing the body. That in fact you did make mention of muscle tensions. That in fact from the neck up, people will give themselves headaches, uh, strain, they will tighten the head muscles, but they also will give themselves headaches because of the muscle tensions that are in the neck. And also, this is related to feelings in the sense that when we are um, uh, angry or afraid or uptight, we will tense up. And so the step of three of Anapanasati is to getting to know this so that, in fact, if you do recognize that you have muscle tension, then do something to relax it. Then they say, keep your hands still. No, you can actually go help your step three by using your hands, finding out where the neck tensions and all of that tension is and give yourself a bit of a massage and relax. Interesting. Okay. Yes. That the whole idea is step four with the body is to relax the body. And strong determination sittings don't get people relaxed. Sitting for an hour, sitting for an hour and a half or two hours doesn't relax the body. However, if someone has gotten the art of having their body relaxed, then they can sit comfortably for an hour or two. But that's not a goal. That's just kind of a side point or a side outcome. The question is, is the mind relaxed? And the answer is, well, the mind's probably a little more relaxed than it would have been if the body was all tensed up. But being competitive in, in our society, we look at how long can you sit as some sort of goal that you can use to uh, prove that you're better meditator than other people. And that's, that's something that is uh, quite common in the West, is competitive meditation. They ought to make it an Olympic event. <laughs> how long can you sit still? <laughs> And so um, taking a whole different frame of reference to the practice of Anapanasati is often given when students recognize step four is to relax the body. How can you relax the body when it's in pain? How can you be in comfort when the body is in pain? 
that in fact that's part of the definition of the word sukha and sukha is number six on the items of the list of anapanasati is to practice sukha make it a skill make it a skill to be developed and what are the aspects of um uh, sukha in the Pali dictionary safety security comfort and satisfaction if your body is uncomfortable no one's going to be satisfied with their body uncomfortable the body can't be comfortable when you're um not um in a state of security that if we feel like that there is something wrong then we are naturally going to be tensed up and then we carry that tension around with us and the time that we're uh should be spending in anapanasati would be then to find those tensions and relax them to relax the body to get the body comfortable to get the uh the mind in a state of feeling safe and secure and comfortable will then give the body uh, or the mind the ability to then become satisfied so but if you're not go ahead so how do you differentiate between discomfort that you should stay with and not like you know get up or do a different posture and, and instead relax and discomfort or pain that you need to really shift position or stretch out or, or you know or is there not a distinction between those two i would say that there is not but i'm not quite sure of your question yet let's um discuss it a little bit in uh, in the sense that there are many different kinds of pain one kind of pain would be a broken arm i use broken arms because i've had some <laughs> and other broken bones and uh, um over time of a six week to three month period depending upon the um let us say the technique of the person who has the broken arm that if he can let the arm rest let the arm relax that's the whole point about putting it in a splint putting a cast on it is to hold the arm still guess what if that kid who has the broken arm still wants to write with his hand, play the piano, play the violin, or carry things around with that hand, by using that hand, the muscles in the arm keep moving, which keeps unsetting the bone. And that's why there's a lot of pain in a broken arm is because uh, the kid won't take the doctor's orders stop using your hand in fact good doctors may in fact put the cast all the way into the hand so that the hand can't be used so that the arm the forearm could heal that's another way of looking at it is is that if you've got chronic pain or that you've got a, a form of an injury we need to take care of that injury as an injury we need to set an arm that's broken. We need to, uh, if there's mosquito bites, the danger is, is that people will scratch the mosquito bites, making it worse. The right thing to do with a mosquito bite to ditches is to put an ointment on it, 
to rub in an ointment. Now, that's actually an, an important clue about what the Buddha talks about is having the right medicines, having just enough of the right medicines like an ointment will keep us from scratching. So if you've got tension in the neck and the meditator sits there with more and more tension, he's going to feel it and complain about it. Oh, I have headaches, my back hurts, my neck hurts and everything like this because they're not doing the things that they need to help alleviate the tension and let the body rest. And so sitting for long periods of time puts the body in tension. And then the student is saying, I'm not going to let this body rest. I'm going to put in two hours of meditation because I'm a tough dude. Okay. And this mentality, I actually think, is, is um, let us say, promoted by people who don't understand the value of Goenka's technique of strong determination sitting, partly because he introduces it way too early. And what I mean way too early is, is that he does this in like day six or seven of a 10-day course where you have people who have never done any practice at all. And after they've sit for a long time in pain and gotten their body really tired and stiff and whatever, now they're introducing the strong determination sitting. Right? This is not good help. It's not good health mentally, and it's not good health for the body. But this is what Westerners think meditation is all about. And this is why there's so much failure. That, in fact, um, we need to start looking at what we're doing with the intention of making a change, making a fix. This is important, especially with the mind, that we have to get the body comfortable. And then as we're breathing in and out, the mind will wander away. And where it will wander to is often into unwholesome places. And so when the student recognizes that the mind has wandered away into unwholesome places, he then only wakes up enough to see that he is in an unwholesome place and he continues with that unwholesomeness. We actually have to wake up quite a lot. Belenka talks about it in the sense that when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. But that takes a whole lot of waking up. That in fact, we can wake up and not do anything or even wake up and then start practicing even worse. An example of that is, is that a loud noise or a flash of light will bring people back into the present moment. But it may also bring them back into the present moment with great trepidation and fear because of the noise, right? That this is not the kind of in the present moment waking up that we're doing. It's, let us say, a skill to be developed as to how strong the waking up is. If the waking up is really, really strong, then there's very little effort that's needed. But if our waking up is very weak, then it will take a lot of effort. An example would be that, um, that when the student's mind wanders away from the breath and he recognizes that, instead of starting again, he'll have thoughts like, oh, 
I shouldn't have let my mind wander away from the breath. Oh, this meditation is really hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, maybe the instructions are bad. Maybe the teacher is bad. Maybe this whole Buddhism thing is a bunch of crap. You see what's happening in the mind, right? Because the mind is still in an unwholesome state. We need to make the change to get the mind out of the unwholesome state. And we need to do as much as we can to prevent the mind from ever getting into an unwholesome state and sitting too long in a particular pasture is almost guaranteed to get the mind in an unwholesome state. Not only that, but getting the mind then into the unwholesome state, we don't like it, and so we kind of shut down. With that, the mind gets really dull in those later times of the meditation after 45 minutes or something like that. And that's when all of the really strange things happen that people are thinking that this is what practicing meditation is good for, is to give you strange experiences. No, you're getting those strange experiences because the mind's not functioning properly. It's tired now. And so we'll have past life experiences or we'll have uh, great deep insights that go nowhere, but we think that they're really profound or whatever like that. But the real value of the practice is to keep coming back and coming back and coming back to this present moment in a wholesome way. And so we can recognize that, oh, I need to make a change. I need to stand up and move around, get the mind back uh, fresh again, take some deep breaths, and then start again. So how do you recommend um, structuring, I guess, you know, so yeah, if I have a typical sit, Maybe that's 45 minutes or something. There'll be some point where it's like it, the meditation's getting better and better, but then there's some turning point where sitting still for so long, let's say 35 minutes in, it starts to, that becomes a bigger hindrance to the, to the meditation. So what you're saying is, you know, something at that point should be done about it. Uh, correct? Um, Oh, you're back. Okay, good. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Um, so what I was saying is like, let's say I want to practice meditation and I start sitting and I go and, you know, however long it goes before it's uncomfortable or there's pain or something or, you know, as it starts to come up. That's already too long. Okay, already. So it starts to come up. Things are not, there's tension, you know, and just relaxing it isn't doing anything. So I'm coming up and I'm standing or walking or you know, doing something else, right? Um, I guess my question is, I don't know, maybe this is just a, a Western thing, doing retreats like this where, you have, where you're meditating so long, but it's like I can't imagine still even, even alternating sitting and walking or shifting in positions not having discomfort or not having pain, you know? Just right. just because you're doing something for so long, but I don't know, maybe that's a fixed way of seeing things. Well, we um, we mistake uh, duration from repetitiveness. That what we're actually practicing 
or should be practicing, knowing they practice, is to do something wholesome over and over and over again. The over and over and over again of doing something wholesome gets rotted away in the Western mind into endurance. And we're not in, intending to do anything with endurance. We're intending to do things repetitively, wholesomely. So one of the things that I have recommended to students for many, many years now, and it seems to be getting good um, uh, results, is to not sit so long. And here's the reason and the rationale behind that. And that is, is that it takes a focused mind to have a good, long attention span. That humanity in general only has a, uh, a, an attention span of about 20 minutes. This has been measured, the psychologists know this and whatnot like that. And having longer classes does not help that. This is why first grade teachers, even in, the, in an hour, of, of a class between the classes, the bells ring or whatnot like that. The teachers need to actually interrupt that quicker to have each hour doing two or three things to keep the students so that they can uh, stay with her. And oftentimes even the teachers themselves don't have a long attention span. That in fact, uh, those monks who were practicing correctly wind up um, the attention span uh, increases for a long period of time, increases longer and longer because of correct practice. But those who are sitting for long periods of time don't increase their attention span. The attention span is only about 20 minutes at best. And so in a, an hour sitting, most of that time, two thirds of your time is going to be wasted our attention span is not that short or not that long. What we need to do now is recognize that and put our practice within our attention span so that we're actually going to get results. That's another reason why a lot of people say, oh, well, I can't get anything done until after about 45 minutes. Well, the reason for that is because you've given yourself an hour and now you can waste 45 minutes and then do something for 15 minutes. Why don't we just stop with that 45 minutes stuff and start practicing correctly right away? That in fact, if you start practicing immediately to get the unwholesome uh, thoughts out of the mind, you can get yourself into a nice, beautiful state within five to 10 minutes. There's no reason for sitting for an hour. But we need to practice often repetition over and over and over again. For this reason, it is recommended that if you're going to be devoting an hour, let us say, every day to your meditation, to break that up into six 10-minute sittings so that each 10-minute sitting, you're going to actually get benefit. Mm. Okay. To actually get benefit in 10 minutes. To sit there and get your mind fixed, get it uh, functioning correctly, getting wholesome thoughts in, getting the breathing going, getting the body relaxed. Oh, wow, how nice this is. And then we can go off and do something else for a little while and then come back 
couple of three hours later and practice it again, another 10 minutes, just to sit and clear the mind of all the unwholesome thoughts, bring in wholesome thoughts. Wow, this is nice, no place to go, nothing to do for the next 10 minutes. I can just sit here and chill. And so this is the new way of practicing to get started every uh, day. You can do this about six times. The first time to do it is early in the morning, just when you wake up. But in fact, waking up out of bed in the morning is a good, um, uh, let us say, metaphor or analogy. And that is that what happens when you first wake up in the morning? What's the very first thing that happens? We're talking about within the first five seconds. What happens? Um. Or another question would be, what is waking up? Yeah, I mean, it's coming out of, you're coming out of a state of relaxation. It's like. No, let us not talk about it coming out of something. What you're actually coming out of is complete ignorance. Total ignorance is what you're coming out of. Okay, so what is waking up at all anyway? The first thing that happens is, is that we are awake and we know that we're awake. We're conscious because we're conscious of some sort of sensory input. We don't wake up immediately in the dream. We wake up coming out of the dream into reality. It could be the bed sheets, the way that they move. It could be the pillow that we come awake to first. It could be a light that's shining, a noise we hear, but it is something that brings us into sensory awareness. Mm -hmm. That's what wakes us up. Okay. The next point, though, is, is that no one immediately gets up out of bed. We all hang around, linger around in this sort of in-between state of being asleep and being awake. But if you actually get out of bed and start walking, say, towards the bathroom or towards the door or finding something to put on or whatever like that, that would then be called awaken up or fully awake. So let's look at the difference between being in the bed and just kind of waking up as opposed to actually getting up, is sati. There's two kinds of sati there. The sati of initially waking up, and then the sati of actually remembering to get up out of bed. And it's that second kind of sati that we're actually developing. So that when a noise happens, or that we become aware that our mind has wandered away from the breath, we will stay in that hindrance, we'll stay in that un, um, uh, wholesome state of mind until we wake up a little more to recognize I've got to get out of that state of mind. I've got to get out of this bed that was so uncomfortable that it woke me up. All right, so the waking up then means that we got two stages of waking up. The waking up into sense consciousness or to be here now. And then the second waking up is the ability to take an effort to do something about it. This is why sati and right effort and right investigation, according to the Buddha and the Sutta, run and circle around each other. They work together like that. 
okay? And so enough right effort is needed to actually remove the unwholesome thoughts that are in the mind. In the case of bodily pain, we need to wake up enough to move the body to alleviate the pain rather than just hating it. To actually do something about it. Okay. So along with that, we can say, well, wait a minute, that gives now an opportunity to practice between the time that I'm getting up out of bed and the time before that, which was being awake, being in bed, what are we going to do with that period of time? In fact, many of us will have an alarm for a snooze, you know, a snooze alarm, five minutes, 10 minutes, well, there you go. That's our meditation time. So as soon as we wake up in the morning, the very first thing that we're going to start doing now is practicing Anapanasati by taking a deep breath and having a wholesome thought such as, wow, I'm so glad that I'm awake and now I can take a deep breath. Maybe I can stretch the body and feel really good. This is going to be a great day. Okay, and we start having some really, really wholesome thoughts. So that by the time we have a thought about, oh, I need to get up and go do something, we've already gotten the mind in a very good, happy state. We brought it up to uh, the ability to meet the day like a champion, as opposed to being a victim of the day, the way that most children, when they wake up, oh, I don't want to get up. Oh, I feel so tired. Oh, I don't want to go to school today. Oh, poor me, you know. Well, that's what we do when we wake up every every morning. So now we're going to wake up and change that into a practice of let's get the mind in here. Let's get it wholesome. Let's get some happy thoughts going. And do that for about five or ten minutes. Get up. Ah, ready to go now. Got some breath. Got an attitude. Let's go. All right. Then another time that we can do it is exactly opposite of that. And that is when we lay down at night. Most people lay down with the idea, oh, I've got to go to sleep. Oh, I've got to get to sleep. That our society tells us we've got to have eight hours of sleep and all of that kind of stuff. You've heard it. And so people will say things like, oh, I've got to get up in the morning because I've got a big day tomorrow. Or I've got a test today. Oh, I've got this, that, and the other thing. And so there they are laying in bed about uh, thinking about tomorrow and not going to sleep. Then they get worried. Then they call it insomnia. There's a better practice, anapanasati. So we lay down in bed with the idea, wow, this feels so comfortable. Oh, I feel so relaxed. And I got no place to go and nothing to do for the next eight hours. I could just lay here and just wallow in joy and happiness. And I don't have to have a thought about tomorrow at all. I can just lay here and feel good. I can lay here and take a deep breath and everything is okay. Everything is fine. No place to go, nothing to do. And the the sheets are nice, okay? So now that's two times that we can practice for 10 or 15 minutes. In both cases, you may not, in fact, get to practice that for 15 minutes when you're going to sleep at night. You may find yourself going to sleep within five minutes because you're just so relaxed. 
no worries, nothing to think about, and everything is cool. Okay, so that means now we only have to find four other times in the day. One would be at lunch, another would be at the breaks, another would be when we time off. Is ever is actually I don't know what your schedule is, but you can figure it out for yourself. A good time to practice is when you're riding a, a public transportation. An even better time to practice is when you're driving to intentionally keep your mind and your eye on the road. And yet most people do that. Uh, don't do that. We have a very, very bad history, humans, of driving cars because we only pay attention to the driving of the car the first year that we're learning how to drive. After that, we let it go on to automatic pilot. And we don't bother much looking at where we're going. We have conversations. We're on the cell phone. Some of us are reading texting. Some of us eat food. Others are yelling at the kids in the back seat. And there's all kinds of possibilities for not paying attention to where we're going. So when we're driving a car, that means that we're intending to watch the hands. What are the hands doing? Watch the feet. Notice what the feet are doing. Watch the road. Notice the side things, watching what's going on. This is a really good way of uh, practicing Anapanasati is when you're driving, knowing that if you stop practicing Anapanasati, you could be dead within 10 seconds. So I have a question. Where you going? Huh? So I have, a, I have a question about uh, that, actually, about Anapanasati and... Um practicing it outside of like a sit or a wall or like a formal walk or something you know i've done some practices more like um, body awareness stuff you know let's say i'm making food or i'm driving or i'm sitting watching tv or something like that i mean that that's not a good example but like um sometimes if it's if there's like a lot going on it's hard to how much are you with the breath and how much is this just being mindful of kind of what you're doing and then and then also where does the wholesome thoughts I come would in go so far as to say generally that's an unwholesome question to ask <laughs> and that a more wholesome question to ask would be wakey wakey look at what you're doing right now to remember to wake up. Now, when we're practicing this six times a day in a particular setting, that's going to help us start to remember to start practicing in between. If we sit for just one hour a day for a long period of time, that leaves us 23 hours with hindrances. And we have been doing hindrances for the past number of years, and so one hour of meditation a day is going to be really, really slow. We need to actually speed that up by practicing more frequently, repeating things on, on uh, a wholesome level more often. Get in the habit of, by practicing quite often, to get my mind back out of the hindrances of work to do, uh, problems to solve, people's faces to fix because I didn't like the words that came out. You know, this is kind of thing. Get our mind away from that into right now everything is okay. Right now everything is all right. Right now 
ah, this is a really good breath. Let's be in the present moment with um, a mind that is fit for experiencing this present moment. So I guess specifically what I meant was when you say Anapanasati, taking it's like step one, you know, noticing a long breath in and a long breath out or a short breath in and a short I breath out. Noticing, intentionally taking it. Okay, so intentionally taking it. So so when I'm driving, I'm and you're saying doing the Anapanasati, it's doing that, you know, intentionally breathing in long, intentionally breathing out long. Breathing out and intentionally looking at the road. Yeah. Intentionally looking at the road, not just that it's always just kind of part of the driving. Right. I'll do a bit, but we intentionally are using the eye door to look at the road. Now, one of the things may happen with that is, is that we can begin to play with how far down the road am I going to look, and what does encompass the road itself. In other words, billboards are not part of the road. So we don't have to pay anything attention to billboards. Fencing along the highway is not part of the road. But people who are likely parked in cars who are going to open the doors, that's part of the road. So we have to watch the cars that are in the road. We have to see how far down the road that we can get. Now, uh, what I'm about to say actually has more to do with uh, let us say, habits of teenagers, and it does habits of Anapanasati. But the habits of the teenagers who were racing their cars, there's a rule, and that is that the further down the road you can see, the faster you can go. And when you can't see down the road at all, like there's a great big truck in front of you, you can't see anything in front of you. You've got to not be behind a truck, especially true for the motorcycle. And you got to get out so you can see. And one of the ways of doing that is by dropping back. You get a perspective, okay, to go slower because we can't see. This is also something that we can add back into Anapanasati with the idea that I'm going to keep my eye on the road and I'm going to find out how far down the road I can see clearly. I can begin to see things that are happening uh, down the road so that when I get it, I'll be there. So we're talking about actually in a way of learning to see the future, which is another way of saying learning trajectories, just like a young child who is thrown a, a handball, a baseball or a plastic ball, they can't catch it because they don't have the hand-eye coordination. Once we gain some skill of hand-eye coordination, then we can catch that ball with our hand because we can see it moving. And we can figure out where it's going to be when it gets close to me, right? We can then apply that same mentality to the road. What's the road going to be like three minutes, three seconds from now when I get there? Or what was the road going to be like four seconds from now when I get way down there? And if it's free, I can do that four seconds in three seconds. I can speed up because I can see what's going on, as opposed to I should slow down because I don't know what's happening very well. I can't see very well. And so this is just one point that we're making about driving, because if you start practicing Anapanasati while driving, you will become a better driver 
and you will actually be better at Anapanasati also. So you're doing both. You have the intention, like when you're sitting, it's just the breath, but like when you're doing other things, it's the breath and the thing you're doing, both in awareness. Mm -hmm. Right. Back and forth, mixed together. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. All right. So with that, we can actually say that there are some things that are going to be highly intellectual, like writing emails. I would actually then, knowing that we have a choice, let's get our mind into a really, really good state before we write the email. And then we can write the email when we're in a really good state. As opposed to start writing the email when we're in a bad mood and, and then try to get ourselves into a good mood while we're writing the email is not a wise idea. It's better to start when we're already in a good state of mind, a wholesome state. Mm -hmm. And so not only that, but you will benefit from that greatly. If you sit for an hour or two in meditation, you might be able during that hour to get yourself into a good state. But by the end of the meditation, because of the leg pain and other stuff like that, you've gotten yourself into a state of discomfort and dissatisfaction. If we practice it this way, you bring yourself into a great deal of state of satisfaction and contentness and pleasure and uh, comfort and satisfaction, and then stop at that high note. Go off and do something. And by doing it many times throughout the day, that will help brighten your day. Wouldn't you rather have, instead of one high moment, followed by uh, the rest of the hour of meditation, you break that up and have six or seven high points every day, followed by you know, another high point or so. So we need to break our ideas about what Western meditation has about meditation and figuring out that what the Buddha is talking about is to wake up and to make a change, to change the mind out of the unwholesome thoughts that it was in and change it into wholesome thoughts. And that's how we get ourselves by having wholesome thoughts, by having thoughts of comfort, by having thoughts of safety, by having thoughts of security, by having thoughts of satisfaction, we begin to feel safe and feel secure and feel comfortable and feel satisfied. And if we do that over and over and over and over again, the fourth item begins to build the Sama Sankapa, the right intention. And the right intention is, rather than feeling like a victim who has some job to do, we're feeling like a, a champion that has a toy to play with. We change our attitude from being the attitude of a victim who needs something like meditation into the champion who's enjoying the benefits of the meditation. This is the change of attitude. This is a really important quality of the Eightfold Noble Path is to get ourselves into a state of sukha, get ourselves into a state that is not dukkha at all. Sukha is, in fact, exactly opposite to dukkha. It is in Nepali. It's that way in, this, uh, in the Thai language. 
And the Sadwe, even in the language of Gujarati, I don't know all the Indian languages, but I've got one student who says yes. And even in my parents' native language of Gujarati, that Duki and Suki are opposites. So if you got yourself into a state of Sukha, that means that where's the Dukkha? You're out of it right now. Nothing magical, nothing mystical. If you're in a good mood, you're just not in a bad mood. So we have to practice getting ourselves into the good mood of being a champion, being a winner. Practicing that six or seven times a day will gain great benefit. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. For, for someone who has more time to practice, um, would more frequency be better or would going longer than 10 minutes or just kind of going again by feel? I would say more frequently would be the way to go rather yeah. than longevity. Yeah. And, and, and trying to have like a continuity between, you know, you, like. That's so, what we're actually going for. Yeah. This is that if you do this six times a day, you will begin to build up continuity between your practices. If you only practice once a day, you're not going to be able to develop that continuity. Right. I definitely, yeah, I know. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's a danger in that in the sense that many students, once they get the idea of doing it six times a day, they begin to think, oh, I should be doing it all the time. And they can't do it all the time. And so now they're fussing at themselves because they can't do it all the time and they're back to square one again. Right? So let's be, become aware of that, that you're not trying to do this all the time. You're doing it first in a schedule and then later congratulate yourself in between when you remember rather than fussing at yourself when you don't. Right. Congratulate. Congratulate, nourish, nurture. This is what we're working on. We spent far too much time being critical, wanting something special out of meditation, trying to get some value from it, instead of just taking your value right now. I was going to say something. So coming out of critical mind into the nurturing mind, this is what we're looking for, practicing that several times a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I distinctly remember I, I did a like a 10 minute sit a week ago. It's just I, I was, I don't know, I was really anxious or something. It's just all I did was 10 minutes and I was amazed by how much changed in 10 minutes. I was, yeah, I was like, yeah. whoa. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> so I could, I could see doing that multiple times um, would be helpful. Okay. All right. Well, let's finish this talk here and give you a chance to rearrange your schedule a bit mm -hmm. so that you can rearrange your mind a whole lot. <laughs> um. Yeah, that sounds good. I just wanted to um, say last session I mentioned 
practicing it's a completely different uh topic but but looking for somewhere to practice maybe in thailand i don't know if you want to we can do it on another call if this is a separate yes let's do that on another call okay i will say that things are opening up but we can talk about your situation and other things like that at a later time but right now what i'm teaching you right now you can practice right where you are right now mm -hmm. you don't have to go someplace to do something in order to practice you've got all the equipment you need you got the body you got your breath you got your mind you got the moment let's do it <laughs> yeah sounds good okay scott well we'll see you in a few days then Go practice a couple of days this way and, and see if it starts giving you benefit. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> well, I didn't go so the, that far. <laughs> Let us say enthusiastic, and we'll talk about that too, the difference between being excited and being enthusiastic. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah, I'm enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I use the word excited pretty loosely. but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll see you then. Yeah, thank you so much. Enjoy the moment. You've got one. Yeah. <laughs> Bye.